Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thanks for downloading our episode of podcast. Our guest today is former 473 Battery STA Patrol Soldier Ryan Yates. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the medical assistance provided to the Ukraine under an initiative he started, and his team has made over 49 trips to hospitals supplying vital medical equipment. Ryan's team has also delivered 2,000 individual first aid kits, with each one representing a potential life saved on the battlefield. We'll also discuss Veterans Army, which was founded by Ryan in 2021, and he's teamed up with a number of organisations to provide counselling, support, training and employment courses and funding to former service personnel who are struggling in life. So mate, thanks for coming to the podcast, it's great to have another 473 battery guy on. Uh, and as normal, we start off with uh, your backstory, why you joined the Army, what made you enlist, and why you chose the Royal Artillery. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I came from um, you know, from Bolton, the northwest. It, it's quite a military kind of area anyway. We were always being a feeder to the military. My home life was kind of, I just wasn't, I didn't really fit into anything. I wasn't very academic at school. I was the jack of life, could try harder, like the, the perfect kind of candidate for the military, really. And it's just something I'd, I'd always had an interest in. I was always going to do. And, and later on in life, I found out in my direct line of lineages, like the last 110 years, I've, I've all served in the military. So it was just something that I wanted to do and I was always going to do. And to be honest, I wanted a fresh start from the work area that I was in and um, the friends that I was living um, living with and, and surrounding myself with. I just thought it was a good time for me to to do something different. Um, I went to a very academic school, very posh school, as were very rough area. So I'd always had troubles as a kid and it was just right for me to have a fresh start. So off to uh, Bolton Careers Office is where I went. And the reason I joined the artillery is because believe it or not, I went into the, I went in as I'm going to be in the infantry and, and the uh, sergeant major in there was like, watch this video. And I watched the video and I saw guys from 473 in a full subsurface OP on the recruiting video and I was like I want to do that job and he's like no mate you can't do that job 
was like, no, no, that's what I want to do. And he's like, right, well, if you that's what you want to do, you have to join the Royal Artillery, but it's not going to be for you. Like, you're not going to be able to do it. It's like, right, put me in the artillery, and that's what I want to do. Oh, that's interesting. Straight away from the start, you saw a recruiting video because most people haven't got a clue until they, uh, they join up. How did you find Harrogate? For me, um, it wasn't too dissimilar from my all my with the military background and stuff that doing block jobs and stuff it was quite normal for me to be honest but it was a steep learning curve uh, and again I think I realised the difference in straight away from like you know normal academia and the, the way it is on the civvy street and at uh, school and uh, I got that rude awakening when the platoon sergeant and things like that and my platoon sergeant was from 2-9 and, and one of the section commanders was from 7 so they would give, they would grief me all the time telling me like you think you're going to go to 473, you're not. This is what's going to happen. And I was always like the the opportune whipping boy, really, to be fair. But it stood me in good stead moving forward. For people who go to 7th and 2-9 at Harrogate and 473, is there any additional beat-up training they get? Or just you just go through the normal pipeline? You just go through the normal pipeline. So I was really fortunate that a platoon sergeant from another company were, was from 473. So my platoon sergeant sent me home and said, go speak to him. Um and he was dead supportive as most guys in 473. I was like, yeah, mate, that's what you want to do. I'm sure you'll do it, you know, full of um, helpful tips and tricks. But there's nothing there's nothing in Harrogate for it. They just say, once you get to phase two, the specialist PT, though, and if you don't do well, though, you're not going to 473. And that's pretty much as far as they'll go with it in Harrogate. So how did you find the selection course when you got to live regiment? Yeah, I, <laughs> genuinely, no. I am not sure how I passed selection. Like, still to this day, anyone who asks me, I'll say the same thing. I only passed because I didn't realise I could say I don't want to be here anymore. Like, it's, <laughs> I'd come straight from phase one, straight from phase two. I had no idea about you can VW and what, what the procedure for that was. And I was just like, right, everybody had said, you know, you're never going to pass. So it started being, right, just get your individuals, like, soldiering skills down and then go back and recourse. So I was, I was just there to get as much information and skills from the first course as I could because I was never going to pass because all these more experienced people than me were, were failing or were telling me I wasn't going to. And then, yeah, I just kept turning up every day. I thought, well, if they don't throw me out, I'll just stay. And when, when they've had enough of me, they'll get rid of me. And it just never really happened. I think that's a good way to be. I mean, there's two schools of thought, isn't there? It's like the first school is you're completely untarnished by any sort of poor military training. And the other school of thought is you're young and immature and don't have the right mindset. We tried a period back in the 80s, we got a lot of guys in from, uh, it was junior leaders back then, which was yeah. sort of the Harrogate equivalent, and loads and loads of them failed. There was two or three of the lads got through, but you know, majority of them failed. So I think fair play to you, mate, for your fitness and your maturity at that age, because it's, it's quite an achievement. It's, it's, about, yeah. it's about them seeing if you're trainable as well, aren't they? Because mm. what they're looking for is someone who's trainable, because you're not going to turn up with all the skills, but have you got the attribution to take on board and progress? And that's what everyone should be looking for. I think I was just really fortunate because I know like once I started phase one, you couldn't go straight to 473 and it was like, because Harrogate's a year, it was whilst I was in transition through Harrogate and phase one, it was like, right, 473 now opened up. And it was just, you know, all my ducks, like I always say I'm not lucky, but on this this occasion, like my ducks fell into a nice row. And um, when I arrived, I was just not going to spoil the opportunity. And, People were like, well, you know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't happen, you're being C troop and you can retrain, you can go and like, you know, people have two or three attempts. And I was like, right, this is what I want to do. I'm in the right place to do it. Um, but at 17, people were just laughing. Like, how old are you, mate? 17, there's no way. 
And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> like, no, mate, there's not. I don't think you realise what you've let yourself in for. You're going to be gone at week one. And I was like, <laughs> right, okay, well, at least it's a week on the hills then. I can get better. And did you get any sort of beat up when you turned up at 473 or were you just straight into the course? So literally I turned up just before Christmas leave and I got put straight on my signals level two course because I just passed signals level one at Harrogate, uh, Lark Hill, sorry. And I was like, right, okay, we finished that. We had like one week like pre-Christmas leave, which is all just like, you know, officers serving your Christmas dinner. And then starting January, I was on the January selection. I was just like, oh my God, well, well I don't know what I'm doing here. It's worrying. It was really worrying. I spent all Christmas leave like running around Bolton and the malls and stuff. I kept fit. So Ryan, how long did you serve in 473 and what operational tours did you do? So I was in 473 for seven and a half years. I believe, unless I'm mistaken, I'm still the youngest person ever to uh, pass selection for 473. Uh, I got badged two days before my 18th birthday. I was given my triangle and told, do you want to do your discharge? I was all right, because in two days you can't anymore and you're doing four years for the Queen. Um, obviously, that was a solid no. So I did seven and a half years in the battery. I did two operational tours. Um, I was on Herrick 11 as part of an FST in uh, the remote PBs on the... Uh, Patrol bases on the 611 in Sangin. And on my second tour, which was Herrick 14, I was a member of the Theatre Surveillance Troop. Just for people that might know, FST stands for uh, Fire Support Team. Could you just give an outline of what that role involved, Ryan? Yeah, so we would go on um, everyday patrols with the, the infantry sections or platoons that we were embedded with, and we would control. So for me, in my day-to-day, I would control artillery, and we'd have an MFC, but if he wasn't on the ground there, I would control mortars as well, lining up mortar barrels onto firing points ready for, if there was um, a troops in contact, then we could bring smoke or um, hitch uh, explosives down onto wherever needed to be really. And then consistently with that, you control things like green eyes as well. So talking to different uh, assets, um, giving you a download of what's going on where and uh, for tracking and things like that. And you liaise straight to the, the highest on the ground, normally a section commander or platoon commander. How old were you when you were out in your first tour? I was 19, I turned 20 on my first tour. We talked with Scott, one of the battery commanders, who talked us through the battery's Herrick tours. And the battery, for those that don't know, had a huge operational commitment over the full period of Herrick, lots and lots of tours. And one of the main reasons when they're doing FST that happened was the fact that FST's training is quite technical and quite difficult and there's quite a lot of people failing it. So a lot of time the battery was qualified and uh, they'd end up doing continual tours out there because of the technical and demand of that job. From your perspective, did you find learning all that controlling air, controlling fires, did you pick up quite quickly or was it just a, a struggle for you? I was really, really fortunate that I was embedded with um, an MFC Bravo from the Rifles, um, and he was like, like my dad, my tour dad, and he, he brought me on. It was my first tour, and he was always like on my shoulder, making sure what I'd done. And we'd spent a lot of time. Well, I had because I de- I deployed as a battlefield casualty replacement, but he'd spent a lot of time with the four seven three guys um, team training previously to deploying on tour. So he was really on side with us and. He was happy to bring me on, so I was, I was really fortunate. It would have been a very, very steep learning curve if uh, Daz didn't help me out. Is it just so we would start talking about age and stuff? Because obviously, you reach back to Jimmy's podcast in three power, they had people who just turned up just over 17 and a half, yeah, who were on the hill fighting before they changed the rules to it. Any operation, you have to be 18, but they had blokes straight out of chaining, 17 year old, straight down to the Falcons, uh, and straight to battle. 
And on a Northern Ireland episode, uh, Miles Amos was 18 when he was killed. So I think you get an awful lot of young soldiers with demanding and responsible jobs. Yeah, I think because people just hear what you do and see the kind of finished product, people just assume you've been doing it and you're a dab and you've been doing it for years. And actually, I think, again, just due to the professionalism of that, we, which is demanded and expected at 473, people just think that you're a sweat and you've done many tours and that's just... Yeah, just sucking in everything as quick as I could, trying to find out what I needed to do to ensure I could deliver. I think one thing Afghanistan brought, in the old day when you did Northern Ireland, there was not a lot of crossover with the infantry and the, and the gunners at that time. But from what you're saying and what I've picked up, out in Afghanistan, there was quite a bit of mutual respect between the units. Is, is that true? Or did you initially encounter some scepticism when you first turn up and have to prove yourself? Genuinely, until the infantry that you're kind of attached to has worked with any of any, especially four seven three, they kind of think who are these guys? Like, do they think the special forces? Like, what's going on with these lads? And then once they get on the ground and they see the level at which you show your soldier. And for me, we had a very high fatality rate, and we lost the medic. But because I'd done advanced forces team medics, if I wasn't on the ground doing my FST role, I was going on the ground as the medic. And then once guys see that you could change roles and you could deliver in all your roles, they were like in awe. And we actually then got quite a lot of guys from the battle groups that we were attached to in the early Herricks coming across the 473 because of that level of professionalism and the way that you can change roles and, you know, be of use all over the battlefield, really. So how did the operations affect you and why did you leave the army? I left the military. It's probably the easiest to start at that point because I'd done my, I'd done my seven and a half years and... As we've already previously mentioned, like the battery was very, very committed to Herrick and we actually were on the, we were doing normal Herricks. It was a period where we were going to stand out um, and we were no longer operationally committed to that. And I suddenly realised, right, I spent a lot of time kind of, I was a Herrick baby, so there was no bullying boots, there was no muster parades, there was there was a lot of in-camp black, in blacks, which I very much enjoyed. And um, a lot of my kind of peer group, the guys who I joined the unit to want to aspire to be, like the patrol commanders and things like that, they were all leaving and they were like getting out to go on the circuit. And I was kind of like, right, okay, you know, if these guys have always stayed me right and if they're going, it's the right time. And at the time, I'd already noticed a few changes within myself anyway. So I was like, right, okay, this is what the lads are doing. They've never stayed me wrong. And, and I signed off and I went to do like private military contracting in Iraq. And I actually was with guys from 473 there. So it was, it was just kind of the same environment. And as far as you know, how operational tools affected me, well, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder in 2015, late 2014, early 2015. I had absolutely no clue once when I was in the military. I just, I just thought like I was the same as everybody else. It literally... I felt once my life slowed down, my kind of brain and my mind had the time to realise that there was a lot of unprocessed trauma from that. And um, we've been on the road from recovery since then, really, with with post-traumatic stress disorder and, you know, the byproducts that come with it. There's a couple of things that I'd just like to pick up on that you said there, right? I think it's interesting that a soldier who comes into an army that's on continuous operations, I think that adjustment then, because when you go in ops, life's simple, isn't it? You eat, you sleep, you go on patrol. There's no bullshit. There's no screwing around. And then you come back to camp life and all of a sudden you're faced with all the mundane, everyday realities of camp life. And there's a lot of mundane realities for <laughs> working in a, an army camp Monday to Friday with no no chance of doing anything exciting. And you do see, and Kevin, I've noticed it on island tours when we went to Iraq and places like that in the 90s, 
uh, Bosnia, there's a lot of people do get out after that because they think, I cannot face the mundane reality of being a soldier in a peacetime environment. Yeah, I, I just remember like, I remember all the pre-deployment training before we, we, we became committed to Herrick and it was like we were always training to go on tour. So when you know there's going to be no tour, it's like, well, what are we going to do? And then, yeah, like through your twisters, bullet, like redoing your boots and stuff, I was like, I just, and you know, it's not right, it's not the right mentality, but I just got so having longer and long sideburns and not wearing twisters, I just, I was not interested in going back to the way that, you know, the British Army excels at being rigid and presenting itself. And for me, I was just... No, I think it's the right time and it, it was a good decision. And I kind of thought at the time, oh, I'm ready to be my old boss. Well, I wasn't, but that's what I thought at the time and that's where we went. A friend of mine sent me a photograph from the paper and it was a, a company on parade, infantry company, done a lot of tours in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I was quite shocked because hardly any of them had any operational medals up. And that's like, you know, seven or eight years after um, Iraq and Afghanistan have finished so it just shows you that quick turnover of operational experience that, you know there were sergeants there and warrant officers and the, maybe the, the company commander but very few other people had medals up yeah it's a strange period now isn't it it's a strict because I think everyone joins the military because they want their war and they want to experience it at their level and now it's like well what's that going to be and where is that going to be and what's that going to look like now with the way the world is and and the battlefield and battle space constantly changing. So I think it was a very, um, Afghanistan was a very strange time, I think, for the British Army, but it actually it, it gave a lot of guys what they needed, the operational experience. And it also, I think, has awakened a lot of people to the aftermath of what comes on post, post being in a war zone and how that can affect people. I think people are now more ready to speak about it and express that, you know, things are, the, the old stoic stone wall say nothing crack on is kind of gone a little bit now, which I do think is for the better as much as the old and bold won't agree with me on that because it's just a different peer group. But I do think it's a, a much better space now that. No, this old and bold and Kev, the other old and bold, definitely agree with you, mate. I mean, I'm not, I'm not old. <laughs> yeah, you keep telling yourself that, mate. So do you reckon when you went to work with the PMCs in Iraq then, do you reckon in some respects you were chasing that excitement again? Or was it, did you not give any thought to that? A hundred percent. I was, there was a lifestyle I was used to. And, and genuinely, as you said before, being in a, in theatre is just easy. You get up in the morning, your aim of that day is to get to the end of that day. I, I used to get up every morning in Afghanistan and Iraq and go, right, my aim is to get to get to tonight. And we do that enough times and we go home or we go on. And it's, it's one of the two. And I think that, it was still an environment that wasn't as rigid as the military, but it still offered me the kind of experiences and the kind of adrenaline and the excitement that um, I was used to, but in a new theatre that I hadn't been to. And obviously, like, the guys who helped bring me up within 473 were all there, and they were like, yeah, see, this is the place to be, and this is what's going on. And I was like, yeah, I'm down for it, and I'm I'm glad I experienced it. Um, I probably experienced it a bit more than I wanted to, but I'm, I'm glad I did experience it. I think it's... It's almost like the closest to the Wild West we're ever going to experience now, I think. Yeah, we're doing a podcast, uh, and well, then the podcast after this one, we're interviewing a guy called Barry Rice, who is in the New Zealand SES, and he's just wrote, written a book about PMC work in uh, uh, Iraq. So we're, we're going to go into a bit more detail on PMCs there. When, when you were out there, did you start to suffer from, did, did any symptoms of PTSD start raising the head when you were working in the PMC world? Yeah, right at the end of my, I did a year in Iraq, and we had a few close shares, but nothing, nothing major. And there was one incident we had, um, and we were very lucky to walk away from it. And yeah, the lid on my Pandora's box at that just blew open, and I did not like what came out from inside. I was just, 
what it wasn't the same adrenaline from being in a in a take. It wasn't the same buzz after you know the survivors buzz and and, and the come down buzz. It was none of that. It was what I know now to be like pure fear and I just I didn't want any of it I never wanted to experience that specific feeling of not knowing what that was again but yeah the lid on my Pandora's box blew open in Iraq and and that's one of the reasons that I stopped doing contracting work because you know I didn't want to be what I felt at the time would be a liability to the rest of the guys on the ground what did you do after you decided to pull the plug on the PMC stuff so I came back to Bolt Sunny Bolton and I, I bought a gym and I personal train people and um, very soon after buying a gym and my life slowing down, went, uh, so I started to see uh, you know, all the signs and symptoms of PTSD and, and very soon after leaving Iraq, less than a year, I was, I'd was i started my recovery and I was starting with um, Bolton Psychotherapies and, and the road to getting my PTSD dealt with. I was just in a, in a space of chaos for about 12 months, 16 months, you know, immediate gratification. Um, things I shouldn't have been doing, recreational drawing, recreational drugs, anything to stop me being in my own head because I did not want to even fathom about thinking about potential what came out of that Pandora's box. And were you about um, 25 at this point, were you? Yeah. So I just came home and I, I got into fitness and I used fitness as a big outlet and, and that was really good for me. It was a place to just put my earphones on and lock myself out and go for it really and, and and that's kind of when I kind of dedicated myself to fitness and trying to help other people and in, in another way help myself it became a bit of a life crutch and I was in the gym business until late 2019 and then I actually went and opened a gym for a, an energy company they they poached me and said like we want a gym for our employees will you come and build one for us um, and I did then COVID I, so I started Veterans Army and after COVID, like the energy company, like finally we're going to get our gym guy. And I was like, sorry, I've got to go to Ukraine now. There's a problem. So yeah, it's kind of been fitness until Veterans Army and what I'm doing now. Who did you go and see when you felt you needed some help? Was it the NHS or military charities or did you go to combat stress or back to the military? So I personally because one and I'll be open and honest with it I felt a lot of shame and I felt like I was very weak because I had PTSD and I felt like mentally I must be weak Hmm. and susceptible I hadn't educated myself anything about it and I didn't want to come to the lads I didn't want the lads to know like a lot of my first year of recovery only a very close family knew I was even going seeing anyone because I was so embarrassed and so ashamed and and people were like you know this guy a lot of people, uh, you know, I've got a lot of respect for the fact that I was in 473 and that, like I passed at a young age and stuff. And I, what I didn't want is people to look at me and not see a professional soldier, which is all I ever want. And, and especially the lads in the unit as well. So I went to the local NHS to my doctor and she was like, why? Well, I've done, you know, I don't know what to do with you, but she referred me to the hospital. And then the hospital, a woman from the hospital actually rang me in, like, on my personal number on a, on a no caller ID. And she said, my husband was in the forces and I know you're going to get tied up in this chain. If you ring this number and say these things, you're going to get fast, you'll get fast tracked. So that's what I did. And then within um, four or five weeks, I was having a conversation with um, an assessor and then I was into Bolton Psychotherapies and I went through the NHS because I didn't want to, again, draw attention to the fact that I was a veteran and using veterans charities and I didn't want people to think I was trying to get a payout or mm. that I was in it for the con or I hated the military or anything because I don't, which is wrong as, as being in recovery. It's wrong to think about that kind of stuff. But I was very much like, I don't want anyone to know about it. I don't want anyone to think that I've got a problem or that I'm weak. I don't want any of my mates still in the mill to know because mm. I don't want to think less of me. So I stayed away from 
military charities and stuff till only very, very recently. Charities that I've met through Veterans Army, I now use myself still. But yeah, I kind of went specifically NHS, specifically non-military related stuff. Uh, and I actually found there's a lot of practitioners in there that there's a lot of guys who have done what I've done from the military who've kind of mm. tried to gone down the same path. So I wasn't on my own in the end. It's interesting because only five minutes ago you were saying about the old and bulls attitude to PTSD and yet you yourself, a young bloke, turned around and said you're ashamed and those sort of negative stereotypes, even in younger soldiers, are still there. And it's I don't think we're ever going to overcome that. We can try and break the walls down. But I think it comes down to attitude of men. You know what I mean? It's something that's ingrained in you. As a bloke, you shouldn't show weakness, even though people talk about the feelings, etc. so much more these days. Yeah, it's it's really, really difficult. And I, I know when I first started like with therapy and my recovery, I was just, I, I was sat in the chair, I'm a fixed yet. And the therapist is like, wow, what have you implemented in your life, Ryan? Like, what have you done to change it? Well, well, I come here every Friday for two hours, take two hours out of my day every Friday. Like, why am I not fixed yet? She's like, yeah. And then she gave me a massive debrief, like a sat major. And it was at that point I started switching on and going, right, okay. Like, it's not just a, a box-ticking exercise. You've got him. Somebody said that to me uh, a while back. I think it was uh, a guy we had on the podcast. He goes, you've really got to admit it to yourself. Can't admit. In fact, no, it was, I'll tell you who it was. It was Tom Satterley, the Delta Force guy we had on. He turned around and he said... Uh, he gets people come up to him because he does something similar to you. And you'll get people yeah. come up and say, my friend is suffering, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And uh, Tom says, I'm not connecting with him. He needs to connect with me because by connecting with me, he's then admitting he's got a problem. If I go to him, yeah. he's not even yeah. crossed that first stage yet. Yeah, it's it's a really big, and actually, it does give you a lot of, to not sound like a hippie, it does give you a lot of power to go, actually, yeah. I need some help and I'm going to go and find the help. And it is the first step. And it is actually something we implement with Veterans Army as well. We don't offer aid. You have to come and ask for it. So, Ryan, tell me about Team GB Dog Sport. I got into dog sport. Like, I know it's... So it's a bad not, title, not, mate. Not dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Colin, Colin does a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got loads of binos. No, I, um, once I realize, once your hobby becomes your job, was the gym I kind of lost a hobby I lost something I could dedicate myself to which was my own like being in the gym and owning a gym people were you know I'll make you up with this or can you do that and I'm like no this is like my time it doesn't work like that especially when you own the gym and I actually had rescued a German Shepherd which subsequently I had to take back to the rescue centre because it was an absolute killer no matter what I did with it I just couldn't get these problems out of it and it was during trying to fix that dog. I met um, a dog trainer who does dog sport. And I was like, what's this dog sport? And it's, you know, tracking obedience, protection. Um, you, you train your dog to like the, the highest degree, like so, like police dogs train to this guy to get trained. And he was a world champion. Um, and I was like, oh, I really like this. And then I lost my dog. And he, and I was like, well, I've had to give my dog back. Like, I can't come and train anymore. And he's like, well, why don't you buy one specifically for sport? Because you seem to really like it. So I was like, right, yeah. And I'd seen Belgian Malinois like when my time in the military and stuff, and I'd always liked Malis. Um, and then I got referred to a really good breeder within um, Germany, and I bought a Belgian Malinois and started doing dog sport. And yeah, we we won a, the um, selection trial for Team GB for twenty twenty two. What does it? So I should sorry, What does it involve? So it's um, three disciplines: tracking obedience and protection and your dog starts with 100 points and you lose a point for everything you do wrong 
Um, so as an example, like in an obedience round, you'll set, you'll do a send away with your dog and then you'll have to down your dog. Your dog will do retrieves over a 1.5 meter jump. It'll bring a dumbbell back. It'll go over an airframe. Um, protection work, you'll do escape bikes, long attacks. Your dog will engage with a helper on a sleeve. The helper will like, drive it with a stick. Uh, try and threaten the dog to come off the dog won't, and then you'll make the dog release the dog will release um, and it's almost like a, it's a routine mm. um, which is heavily marked and the higher the level you go the kind of more critique you get and I'd very fortunately found got a really good trainer who kind of took me under his wing and I, I then started learning helper work so I became the guy who puts the sleeve on and I worked everyone's dogs with protection and he then gave me extra stuff with my obedience and my tracking. And we, we, we put a really good package together with my dog. And just before COVID, we started doing like the circuit, competing. I'm like, it's an amateur sport, but everyone thinks it's double professional. <laughs> we started doing the rounds. Um, and then, yeah, at the end of 2021, I went for breed specific for Belgium Malinois, the world championship selection trial for Team GB. And we won the trial in November 2021. Nice one. Um, so I was due to, I was due to go to Greece um, with Team GB in April 2022, but unfortunately I was up the road in Ukraine uh, and I didn't, and it really like sticks in my craw. Now I'm really, really disappointed that I, I couldn't take my dog onto the world stage and, and go and wear the you know, Team GB jacket, but you know these things happen. There's always another year. Yeah, and believe it or not, there is, I'm not going to name names, but there's another guy, strangely enough, from 473, who's done exactly the same thing as me, and he also made the selection trial team, and he actually went to the world to Team GB this year. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's a very straight breeder person, very much time to 473 likes it, and we seem to do really well. Colin's <laughs> got a dog, baby. Your dog can go on into the cow. I've, I've got a terrier, mate, and he does nothing I tell him. So, Ryan, tell us about the medical aid, then, you delivered to Ukraine. And how did this come about? The easiest way to start is to go back a little bit. So I started the Veterans Army during 2021, the COVID pandemic. And we just had like the kind of withdrawal from Afghanistan. And um, as I said, I've obviously suffered from PTSD. And when I, in very early stages of my recovery, kept it very private, my friend actually took his own life. And I kind of then felt in this position where I've been a bit jack on him. You know, if I'd have been open and honest with my recovery, he would have known that he could have come to me and spoke to me. And it's un- it's it's almost survivor's guilt. It, it's wrong to think it, but at the time I was like, you know, you should have done more for him. So I started then taking my recovery very public and very open um, onto like mental health platforms, doing guest speaking and at schools and business events and things like that about, you know, my kind of my journey with mental health and, and my education on it. And then during 2021, um, I was working on a recovery platform for veterans, people who suffer from alcoholism, drug addiction. And we had this, these statistics for veterans. And in 2020, they'd gone up. 2021, they'd gone up. There were statistics. And the UK doesn't really keep veterans like suicide statistics and things like that, but they were keeping statistics. And there was a period of time over like 40, uh, 10 days where 14 guys had tragically taken their own life. And I basically was on this platform saying somebody somewhere should do something about this. It. like someone's got a duty of care to these guys and the big organizations aren't doing it. And someone put on my toes and said, well, why don't you do it? And I was like, right, okay, I, I will, I'll do it. And, and we launched Veterans Army in 2021 and primarily it was to 
give um, you know peer support, mental health services to veterans, and then we include veterans and the family members. So you can be a spouse, you can be a family member, a daughter, auntie, uncle, anything. Any of you have served in British military, and uh, your family is in need of some kind of assistance, we'll help them out as well. And we started doing educational courses for guys that needed a bit more extra training, mental health services. We actually trained therapy dogs and companion dogs. And then we started this huge peer support community on social media, which then became, you know, well-being workshops and codependency workshops. And it kind of just grew arms and legs. So then this has gone on and I'm kind of trying to get a bit of traction on social media so people can see what we're doing and veterans can find us and month on month the demand for our services is going up and we don't run from government funding so i've literally run on crowdfunding donations and subscriptions so i'm then out trying to do like we did a charity tank lift where i deadlift bench pressed and squatted the weight of a challenger two main battle tank which is not fun so you can see about five tons it's not fun at all and we were just like generating funding and plodding on really and then ukraine started and very much like what happened with Afghanistan. The community was like, what's going on with Ukraine? This is wrong. And I came out and said, you know, it doesn't feel right to me this. And other people were kind of with me. And for a brief 30 seconds, we were joining the Ukrainian Foreign Legion and we were going to go and do our bit. And then I had to take my ego out of it and say, I've got PTSD. Like, I, you know, I don't want to put you guys or me in this position. Like, also, who do we think we are? Like, what good are we going to do in a rifle rifle company in, in a line of trench? We're not going to change the battle space. We're not going to impact anything. As much as, as, as cool as we think we are, we're, we're not. You know, we're not those guys. I'm certainly not the guy I was in Afghanistan anymore, unfortunately for me. So, just sorry, right? Um, just, just before you go on, it's interesting that you, you decided what you did there because um, when the war started, you had that initial people in the news rushing to join up the sort of the foreign. Yeah battalion or whatever it was at the time pretty soon there's a lot of them trying to get back out and even afghanistan veterans who turn were turned around saying this is nothing like you experienced in afghanistan this is air ground artillery and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not denigrating what india and afghanistan went through but this is like full-on well, it's a peer fighting and it's, it's another level isn't it yeah it, it's mind-blowing it is actually mind-blowing um just the level of fighting, and it's like World War One stuff. It, the ferocity of it is trench warfare. It's you know, guy on guy with a shovel or a helmet or whatever to hand to get what they think is the job done there and then. And at the start of the war, everyone was like, "It's going to be a rollover. We've got days to help out." So we were like, "What? What can we do? Where can we go with it?" And I had a couple of guys. A guy from Four Seven Three, Craig. He rung me the last time I'd spoke to him. He rung me to tragically tell me about Eddie Mayo. So I was like, oh God, what's he ringing me for at half one in the morning? Like, this can't be a good phone call. And he's on the phone. I've been watching you live. I agree with you. We should do something. Another guy from 473, seeing you live, we should do something. I was like, right, let's be realistic. We're not joining the Legion, but what can we do? Medical aid is, is something that we fell on. I had a few contacts from my PMC days and then people that I know now. And by day seven of the war, I had a recce section in Ukraine planning the route home and I was out and I'd managed to accumulate £55,000 worth of medical aid to kind of deploy and it was supposed to be one run it was supposed to be like let's get as much as we can because you know there's going to be a rollover but let's do our part and by day 10 of the war we were like on the border crossing into Ukraine with this stuff and 
yeah, Opnadale was was formulated and launched, and it's kind of we've done fourteen or well, fifty trips now since since the start of the war. As recently came back as um, March this year, planning to go back in August as well. It's just another world. It's like nothing I've ever experienced before. When you did that initial first run and you're crossing the border, how did it work? I'm not saying customs that, but, but how how were you viewed by the Ukrainian border police or whoever was manning the border checkpoints? I think it's important to try and paint the picture um, of what it's like at the checkpoint. So once we arrived, obviously my Gaz and uh, Craig had gone and done the record. They'd come back and we'd got some really good value points. Like you can't use hire cars, you can't take hire cars into the checkpoint and shut them down. Transportation. So we'd already addressed we needed to have our own transportation, which is something we sorted out. And um, we had to have staging points to get things delivered and dropped off. And we had to liaise with other people. And other organisations with a hand over fist, but... At the border, there was 15,000 refugees leaving each checkpoint every day. Like 6 million people have been displaced from the Ukraine. And to the point they were shutting the borders at night because they were just overmanned. Um, as an example, like when we first crossed over, there was like the retreat from Stalingrad or Dunkirk. There was just, as you're approaching the, get, uh, the checkpoint, there's like bags on the floor, someone's suitcase, coats, pushed by people's worldly possessions, which they thought were valuable. But after hours of standing in a line, they become no longer valuable anymore. And your things that people can't carry, kids crying, and it's all it's all women and children. There's no men. And at one point, the checkpoint time for a vehicle to leave Ukraine was five days. There was 15 miles of, of traffic trying to leave Ukraine. People were sleeping in the cars. People were abandoning the cars. It was it was like a post apocalyptic film like, when you hear about like people leaving in droves and herds of people, um, and they were just desperate to get out of the country. Like Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live, from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I was very kind of blind really and a bit ignorant to like what Ukraine was and, and what kind of people it was I kind of in my mind thought it was going to go to a kind of scenario of Afghanistan but what not you know these guys have got Tesla Goldwings and Ferraris and Porsches and you're like oh, oh okay like what's going on here this is this is completely different to what I expected and you know people are mobile phones at the border and well, it's it's that first world location isn't it again yeah war in Europe you know and we haven't seen this since Bosnia days and Kosovo which again was a modern country that tourists used to go to. Yeah, because I think when you go to Afghanistan, even just things like the heat, the the different mm. ways of yeah. dressing, it looks poorer. Same with Iraq. Yeah, but you know, you turn up to it could be Bolton, couldn't it? 
Yeah. 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 It, it really, really could. And um, the people are just so... It makes you feel awkward how grateful they are. Like, we'd be in the checkpoints and people come over to us, like, crying, thank you so much for trying to save my country. And you're like, I've done nothing. I'm just bringing some dressing through, like listen you do you need some food do you need something and you feel awkward you feel embarrassed because they're so grateful for what you're doing and um they make such a big deal out of it and still like if you're in once you're in country and like you're eating and stuff people come and try and pay for your meals and you're like mate keep your money for yourself you don't know when you're going to need like we're all right but they're just so grateful for any kind of help and any kind of facility you can be in because we were there so early um we got this amazing access. Like we, we got the access to the commandant of the Ukrainian Foreign Legion. I won't name names, but like we got his mobile phone number. He gave us all his paperwork and literally checkpoints. There would be could be six or seven miles of vehicle queuing. Hazard lights on. We drive in the wrong lane down the down the road towards a checkpoint with this paperwork, and they would just wave us straight through the border. We were getting we we're in the diplomatic lane. We were whizzing you straight through and they were like, Ryan, what we need this, what can you bring us? Like, can you get us that? At one point, I was giving like barefoot to bring arms and ammunition in. I was like, it's not Lord of War, mate. I just flip it. I run a non profit and I'm bringing a medical bed and I can like can you get M4s? No. I'm like, I'm not that guy. So like, that's an interesting point you bring up because I think what a lot of people don't get in the UK is this is an existential crisis for Ukrainians. You know, it's their country and their identity and everyone's on the line here. No, you've already alluded to the fact that it was just women and children coming through the checkpoints because Zelensky said nobody over the 18s leaving, everything, or, you know, every 18 to 55 has got to stay in the country. That He made that law. And also, you read about each of the battalions are crowdfunding things like drones, the crowd, the crowdfunding body armor yeah. and all the rest of it. So it really is a strange hybrid of the West providing sort of large-scale equipment, but they're doing an awful lot to help themselves and rewriting the rules of how things are done in some respects. Did you see quite a bit of that when you were over there? We were involved in delivering like body armor and stuff as well at the start of the war because it was just anything you could get across the border that... There was no, like, right now, everything's itemised and there's full inventory sheets. It takes me, like, half a day to sort it all out. But at the start, it was, it slide your van open. What have you got in here? Humanitarian aid, medical aid. Do you know where you're going? Yeah, that was it. You were gone. Um, and we actually met up with the unit that trialled the body armour plates the Ukrainians are using now. And what they actually did is, I'll have to send you some of the imagery and stuff, but they were using, um, they were flattening out springs from trains and then welded them together, and it was almost like Roman scale armor. Mm. And I've got the video footage of them being tested on the range with like 7.62 and stuff, and they, they're not coated. They weren't using soft armor, and guys were just cutting around with these plates, and they're like 10 kilos each. They're really, really heavy. Like, you'd rather get shot than get it by one of you in these plates. Like, the sporing alone is going to... But this is like what they were using, and it somehow got passed, and the next thing you know, certificate from the Ukrainian government, bang, this... this this body armor sorted, use this now if you want. And then it was, you know, well, what about soft armor? And they were going buying up things from Airsoft centers. They were buying up plate carriers from Airsoft centers. I took like 3,000 sets of Osprey, like not plates, just old vests, which we bought from military surplus for different units. Units were then, as you've alluded to, like crowdfunding for their own drones. We then developed, um, as the war went on, um, again, low guys from 473 and a couple of guys from the HAC joined the team and he won't mind me saying like Rupert was the old BK 473. He literally put a call out on 
leaked in saying, does anyone have any kind of affiliations with Ukraine? We're looking to deliver some kind of medical training and pre-hospital trauma training um, and medical kit. I reached out and I was like, yeah, I've got a team in Ukraine all the time. Like we've done X amount of trips. We'd love to facilitate you and help you out if we can. And then this relationship blossomed and all of a sudden, they were running an organization called Fluid Mind and they came in with us and we were going in country. Me and the guys were delivering medical aid to hospitals. We were taking our instructors. We had two TCCC instructors and Rupert instructed as well. And we were taking them into country and we were giving pre-hospital treat, uh, trauma training to soldiers, um, primarily with the IFAT kits, which we were taking into country. And then it started being not just soldiers, but like um, militias from the Donbass and just loads of different organisations. And these individual um, first aid kits, IFAC kits that you're referring to, Ryan, so are these just like a cat tourniquets, first field dresses, like a, a trauma, little trauma pack, or are they are they something more than that? So it, effectively, yeah, you'll, you'll get normal, you get like hemostatic gauze, a couple of different types of chest seal, an OPA, an NPA, so oral pharyngeal, nasal pharyngeal, so that's a way of sustaining your airway through your nose or through your mouth for people that don't know. Um, you get the case, you get tough cuts, you get a crib sheet of how, what to fill in for your casualty, um, tourniquet, but also different types of tourniquet as well. So everyone wants cat, but no one can afford cat. So we, through Fluid Mind and through the ingenuity of, of Rupert, the OBK, we found these um, tourniquets called the Turnkey tourniquet. And he went away, learned how to deliver training on them. And then we were giving Ukrainian troops tourniquets, which didn't go to hospital with the casualty, you apply it, and then once it's been on and and that casualty's then been taken to an air station, you can get that back and it still works. You can use it. You can, re- un- unimaginable amount of times you can use it. So we were then be- delivering these other kind of products to other people, and then other people started doing it. And even the old kind of British tourniquets, a bit of rubber tubing and stuff like People started thinking outside the box um, and different types of hemostatic gauze. We found one through, again, through Rupert and the the boys from the HAC, they found a really good one because no one could get sell uh, anymore because the money just became so expensive and no one had any money. Like the Ukrainian military didn't have any money to give to anybody. It wasn't a case of, you know, you go and do it because you should. It was like, if we had it, we'd give mm. it, but we've got nothing. So we were then back in the UK crowdfunding to be able to deliver these kits and put these kits together. And they were getting sourced out from the Isle of Man. Uh, from a veteran in the Isle of Man, he was putting all these kits together because he could get the component parts at like pence on the pound. And then he was putting the kits together. His mate had a shipping company, which would then ship them to Lancaster. I would then pick them up from Lancaster and put them on one of our vans, which would go to either our warehouses in Slovakia or Poland. And this huge infrastructure, like the rap runs during the Second World War, like this huge infrastructure just built of all these different people and organizations wanting to help Ukraine because they couldn't help themselves. They just didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have the money. And there wasn't the availability of the kit that they needed. Is it getting less ad hoc now? You already alluded to the fact that the process across the border is becoming more formalised. Are you getting a better understanding of what's required rather than doing what you did initially, which was gathering as much as you could of anything that you could get your hands on? Are you now able to provide sort of more bespoke requests? Yeah, so now effectively what I do is I, I'll go out and I'll get a list of things that I can get my hands on in the UK and then I'll reach out to one of the different NGOs and organisations that we work with and say, this is the list of stuff I've got. Does any of your guys need it? So we work with lots of different foundations that are still within the Ukraine now. 
And I'm like, do you need this? And they'll be like, yeah, this hospital here needs it. If you drop it here, we'll take it the rest of the way. That stuff you've got there, these guys over there need it. We'll say, if you can get it here, we can move it the rest of the way. And it all starts being, again, you know, it's like the old postal system where you, you'll take your van as far as you can go and then you'll cross. And we've cross-decked vans and stuff in all over Eastern Europe um, at this at this point now. It, it's absolutely mad the amount of stuff we've done. But the the checkpoints and all the procedures now are much more rigid. Like, I think it, no one foresaw it going on this long. Yeah. And... The way it was at the start, it couldn't have carried on because it was almost a bit like Mad Max at one point. Now the military units are very much more like, yeah, we need bank, and they'll give you a list. Like you can literally, I could ring, email them, they'll send me a list of everything that they need, and I just thought, yeah, I can honour this, this, and this. And as long as you deliver it, they're so grateful for it. But as long as you're not one of those guys who um, says they can deliver and doesn't, or like what is huge in Ukraine at the minute is war profiteering, and we've met our first war profiteers on day 10 of the war. Are these Western guys um, coming into Ukraine? Yeah, so like there's there's been a lot of them, and a lot of them have been found out, um, but like day 10 of the war, we, the the initial delivery we were making at £55,000 worth of stuff, I was supposed to be taking it to the Mukachevo Field Hospital uh, just outside Uzgorod. So we crossed from Slovakia, um, we were supposed to meet a vehicle to pick us up. We'd been we'd got a lift in a van, but we didn't have a van at this point because we'd just thrown out where the hired cars. So we're sat at this huge refugee centre with fifty five thousand vans of medical aid and this absolute charlatan cowboy turns up, yo, is that stuff for me? I'm like, who are you? Well, I worked at the field hospital and we were like straight away, me, Gaz and Craig were like, No, this it feels moody, it's wrong. Something's not right here. We were like, Yeah, we want to see where it's going before we give it you. And this guy had a tent. That was it. His field hospital was a tent, but he'd been all over social media because I'd found out about him through aid, uh, UK Aid to Ukraine pages on social media. And people had been sending this guy thousands of pounds. They'd been sending him loads of different kit that had just gone missing. And then he turns out he was selling it on the black market and he was taking humanitarian aid and he was selling it on the Polish black market. And we'd met him and we were just like, no, there's something wrong about him. We're not happy. Um, we spoke to an organization. We met a couple of girls from a German organization and they told us a bit more about what had been going on with wall profiting. We were like, oh, we think we found one of these guys and we went our own way with it. And very fortunately as well, because he's one of the biggest wall profiteers going and he actually, like, I think he's subsequently been arrested. Um, but it's all over. And I mean, don't get me wrong. We all know that, you know, Ukraine's not straight down the line and there's some, you know, local politicians that were doing things they shouldn't have been doing and selling things. Well, Zelensky's Zelen- Zelen- just bad. sacked a couple of guys, hasn't he, for, for that what you mentioned there, war profiteer, and only handled it two weeks ago. Yeah, it was really, really bad at the start of the war because there was no, no one was checking. So I could just bring you an ISO container full of humanitarian aid. I go back to the UK thinking I've done something good. You've got it in a lockup while everyone's starving and you're selling it in corner shops. Yeah. And like, I've got no, I've got no idea. And really, they don't know it's coming to the country, but people were making up. And it, it was really bad, mate, at the start of the war. We were really, really bad for war profiteering and people bringing in Chinese £2 arnicas that were snapping on people when they were getting it like applied and things like that. It was really, really bad. Just like COVID, there's always somebody out there to make a bit of money out of misery. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it was bad. Really bad. I've got a question for you, Ryan. So we've, we're sort of focused there on the physical trauma and, and, the, and the first aid, you can apply for that. Now, you're a soldier. You served Afghanistan. You've seen the worst of war. You've seen the effects it has on people's mental health. What do you think the impact of this war is going to be on 
the mental health of that nation, the PTSD, not just in soldiers. I mean, how are they going to cope with that when hopefully this ends sooner rather than later? I mean, that is a great question. And I mean, other than on top, and I think it's how they're going to cope with all that on top of generational poverty because the way the country's been left now, that there's nothing that towns are gone, leveled, homes are gone, destroyed. Like, apparently, from the latest statistics I was reading, um, which were a, a very good source, they reckon that 10 million people have lost homes. Like, if you go back to them, they're not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Unlucky, that's that's you. So you've got to redo your home whilst getting over the trauma of... It's rough. It's really rough. Like, I've never been in a place before and experienced, like, air raid sirens, like, during the Blitz in the Second World War. And I remember the first time I experienced, I'm like, what is this going on here? And then people, like, get to a shelter. I'm like, really? This is what we're doing? Get to a shelter? Yeah, get to a shelter, mate. And you're running to get into a shelter and you're waiting, like, civilian streets are being leveled and the kids are crying and you're like, right, how do I deal with this? Because this is scurring me. Mm. I'm like, how is this poor kid going to happen who's now not got school anymore? They've just come through COVID. There's now no school. Like, their apartment building's been leveled. And I just think that I don't think the country has the, the makeup or the infrastructure to be able to deal with the aftermath of, of this conflict because it is just so vast and the level of extremes has been so great that for a long, long time. And I think, you know, to the point of where the children of Ukraine now are, are early adults, we're going to be dealing with and hearing about the aftermath of what's gone on and their experiences as well. Um, and there's no, there is nothing like that. That You know, we now get troops. I get Ukrainian troops that we've met asking if they can access veterans' armies. And I'm like, guys, I, I can't because I'm chartered to do just this. Like, is there nothing like that over here? And I actually know guys that are going and creating something like what we've got here in Ukraine. If so exactly for that reason, because there's just nothing there for them. Um, as an example, we were giving IFAC training and trauma training to the Cargo 200 teams, and these were civilians that are seconded to clear the battlefield of the dead. And the Russians were booby-trapping bodies and killing them. And this are these just Ukrainian civilians, are they? Right, yeah. yeah, Ukrainian civilians. It might just be a postman. Before the war, he was a postman. And now he's clearing the battlefield, and, he's lo- and they're losing the mates in the process, and they're driving around in refrigerated Mercedes Sprinters. Pulling dead bodies off just, of the battle space. Yeah. It's a yeah. horrendous job like that. Yeah. And it, well, it, it wasn't one they volunteered for either, I don't think. So it's like, how, how, do, you, how do you help that person? What, how do you start that conversation? Mm. Post-World War Two, there was a Marshall Plan which effectively rebuilt Germany and uh, a, lot of the ally, a lot of the countries in Western Europe. So I think you're going to need some sort of Western... Uh, version of my version of that again, but also I, I, the medical side of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, did that in Germany and in Japan. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we've never done it before. It's just corporate memory has to remember that, and then it starts that rebuild. I mean, th- thanks for that, Ryan. That was really uh, interesting. I could, I could talk to you all night about that. Uh, we, we've been <laughs> here for two or three hours, but I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll move on a bit. And is there anything else you just want to add to that before we move on to how people get in touch? to help donate and help you do the good work you're doing. Is there anything else you want to add before we move on to that? I think I'll just, I'll, I'll leave that kind of point on a statistic of, you know, for people who, who hear about war profiteering and things like that, that, you know, Veterans Army, we raised £45,000 sterling and we turned that into over £2 million in medical aid delivered into the Ukraine and our costings were all logistics, all fuel. I can plan routes by what petrol station has got fuel, what's good fuel, what's bad fuel. 
Uh, and I think that if anyone thinks they've given a large sum of money to an organization to provide things like medical aid, and it's not buying something brand new, look into it because I can literally go to the NHS with a few polite letters and some proof of who I am or what I'm doing. And they'll happily give me, I've taken anesthesiology machines, surgical suites, over 400 wheelchairs. It's not like just PPE. So if people are raising these big sums of money at the start of the war, we were hearing about it, people, oh, this, this school had raised 14 or 15 grand and giving it to these guys. I'm like, well, what's it gone on? Because they're not even in Ukraine. Mm. Um, it's just, you know, be careful if you are wanting to help and if you are, you know, considering getting involved in it, like, if you are raising money where it goes, because if it's not on, if it's on anything other than logistics, I would be asking the question as to why, because that's the only real yeah, cost. You put scares off the top. Yeah, I mean, it, we we were doing deliveries for it cost us about five thousand pound round trip and all of that was food or fuel, mm. like because we weren't paying for the kit. I'm saying we're going to round up. We got one more question for you. That's what I'm saying. I could, I could yeah. be here all night. So I take it when you go across there, are you what, are you like prepared to bash her up at the side of roads? Do you stay and do you have friendly people you can stay with? What's the sort of the how does that work? Yeah, so are we. Um, We've got a really good affiliation with uh, one of the hotels in Krakow and they actually let us store our vehicles there um, because obviously that's a problem as well. We normally forward my, like we fly to Krakow and then if we're crossing through um, the Polish side, we'll then move up to the border. And obviously that's just Airbnbs or hotels or whatever. Once you're in Ukraine, you're literally, yeah, you're ready to bash it out in the vehicle, but it'll never, ever happen. Like there's always a Ukrainian that'll say, come, you can sleep on my floor or you can do this. But one of the things that we do is we try and use Airbnbs because it's still a way of giving revenue to people. Mm. You want next to no money for it. Genuinely, like we'll sleep three to a, like a, in a room with three single beds and they're charging you pennies. Um, but it's just another way of us trying to give back to the economy and trying to keep these like the kind of infrastructure going as well. So there's always something, although like we've also been bitten by that and we're in Mikolaya for like 10 minutes before you had to be off the streets because curfew down that end was serious business. And we went to the hotel and it had been closed for like eight minutes or something stupid. And we were like, well, it took our money this morning on live. Like, yeah, <laughs> You're right, yeah. We, uh, we were worried dead. But yeah, it's, it's kind of, I've stayed in Ukrainian people's houses. I've stayed in barracks. I've stayed in Airbnb. I've stayed in the vehicles. It's just kind of once you cross into, you know, past the border, it's kind of anything goes. Just prepare for prepare for the worst, really. And always have your dust bag and warmest jacket in the wagon with you. So, Kev, you any final questions for Ryan? Yeah, I think, I think it will surprise people. The the Airbnbs are advertised all the time. Yeah, that's surprising. And hotels, but well, there's a lot of people. I mean, because a lot of organisations have moved into their charities and such like, and just like they did in the uh, Bosnia War and all the rest of it, they're standing in the hotels. Plus, you've got this massive army of journalists, and they're all staying with their crews and all the rest of it. They're all staying in hotels. They're, they're currently in the best hotel in Kiev called the Skyloft Lab. That's, that's where all the press are. And that's the normal way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly where they are. Wait, and they probably rarely leave there. <laughs> when you're driving through the countryside, right? Again, I'm, 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 I said I'll end up talking all night. So I need to make this my last question. <laughs> when you're driving through, is there an obvious sort of demarcation line you're coming across it, and it's like a demarcation line where the fighting's sort of come to a halt and there's just destruction, or is it you sort of slowly ease into it, the odd wrecked building and that? Yeah, it kind of. For me, it kind of gets denoted by the more checkpoints you come to. So you'll start seeing the odd checkpoint and a bit of, obviously at the start of the war, even the even places like that were getting hit. 
Um, so there was checkpoints everywhere, and then what they've done is the checkpoints have moved further forward now because the troops are needed where they're fighting some more. So as you start getting seeing more and more checkpoints, then you start seeing like the anti-vehicle um, structures in the road and things like that, and then it's when you'll start seeing the devastation. And as you get further into places, you know, like Poltava and Mikolaev, you can literally look across a bridge and see where there used to be residential buildings just gone. And it's literally as, as simple as looking over your shoulder. Um, and, you know, yesterday there was an apartment building there this morning. It's not there anymore. And it's not even just at night as well. During the day, you can just be walking, trying to get a bit of food. Next thing you know, the siren's going off and something that was there has just disappeared. It's like being, the easiest way to say it's like being on a banana boat and you get a splash and then your mate's fallen off, but a building's gone. Or you're like, yesterday, I'm sure this was there and it's just gone. And there's no kind of, there's no telltale signs of it. Um, it's just there's a higher military presence and then destruction, devastation, bit parts of buildings gone, vehicles burned out. Um, and people, like genuinely people still live in these, because they've got nowhere to go. Yeah. People still live in these buildings that have been hit by uh, munitions. They're still living in them. That are like living in the cellars because the cellars have got loads of heat and stuff. It's all underground. But then when these buildings come down, you know, We've been seeing people getting digged out, dug out of buildings and stuff like that. It's that World War Two. There's no, isn't it? yeah. You just you can't. You'd be like, right, it's definitely going to be kinetic here. You think you think to yourself, it's going to be kinetic here. I've, re- I've seen all the reports. I was speaking to the troops earlier. It's going to be kinetic. You'll get nothing. We were watching. I had some kids do um, an ice dance. It was the first like, ice skating dance um, since the war began. Ten minutes later, building it was in leveled, gone. You're like, hang about yeah, it. Right. It makes no sense. There's no... And I think that adds to the fear factor of it. Like, it's a heart and mind thing because when you think you're going to get it, you don't. And when you don't, you do. Okay, thanks for that, mate. So what I'll do then is I'll post links to your webpage, etc., in the show notes where people can get in to look at Veterans Army and how you uh, how to get in touch with you for the aid to Ukraine piece as well and how they can help out via that link. Cheers, mate. Thanks for that. And as usual, we'll finish off with our Desert Island Dits, which is Ryan's choice of book, film, and luxury item. So what have you chosen for this episode? Right, so the book, and I was, I was like, what's going to be cool? What are people going to think I'm really <laughs> cool because I've read this book? Um, and I've gone for a book by an author called PC Wren, and it's called Bourgest, and it's a, a fictional book, uh, a, a story of three brothers who joined the French Foreign Legion uh, around 1914, and they do it to kind of escape what they think has been a theft. But it's all about honour and integrity and things like that. And it's one of the first books I ever read as a, as a child. I was about 13. My granddad gave it me. And it actually, I really fell in love with the romance side of the military. And it's very, very descriptive about the Foreign Legion at the time and guys wearing medals and going as, having a background of X and coming out as Y. And I think for me, kind of really, that's what I wanted when I joined the military. And it built this picture in my mind that I really did fall in love with the kind of romance side of the military and changing who you are and, you know, being more in control. And um, the book itself is really, really good. And although PC Wren wasn't in the Foreign Legion, he reckoned that he knows someone who would definitely serve because the the level of authenticity about the time during like Algeria and things like that. And the book actually really changed my life. And I really, really just 
both the military and thought, yeah, I want to be these guys. Uh, yeah, so I went for Borges. So how disappointed were you you turned up in Afghanistan that was nothing like Borges? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had no medals and no, no Kepi Blanco. Yeah, <laughs> and no one liked me. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely very, very different to what I thought it was going to be, but yeah, we get through the door, I think, and you know, I'll, I'll still reread it now. If I read it now, I've read it again tomorrow, I'd still fall a bit French for a leaf shot over again. <laughs> I mean, the first time I went to Iraq uh, in 91 on uh, Granby, I'm sure how old I am now, but I was expecting the big rolling sand dunes, you know, or like something out of Lawrence of Arabia. It's just yeah. flat as a pancake, dirty, dirty, dirty sand. horrible. <laughs> and I'm like, I stood there looking at it going, this is not the desert. This, this is like a yeah. site of a building. Construction work. No one mentions these camel spiders in any of this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The fact they're not in Borges, are they? <laughs> so, what's your film oh, choice? Oh, uh, yeah, so I went for a mod again. I was like, what's lads going to think is cool? But I actually went for a quite a modern film, all quite on the Western front. And I, what I really liked about it was that it follows the story of a 17 year old lad who basically joins the German army during the First World War. And it's all about his kind of perspective of joining the army, marching off to battle, you know big songs to the battle, bought into the propaganda and then his experiences of how the war churned him. And I think it's what I liked about it was that you don't really get that perspective or that point of view. And actually, if you look into it, the character from the story is fake, but it's based on a real person's experiences, a real German author's experiences. And then when when you realise that, you're like, Jesus, like this guy's, he had a rough time during the First World War. I, I know everybody did, but I just really liked it from... Again, I, I kind of think a mental health um, perspective of just, you know, seeing him at the start and then seeing him at the end and that change in the character and how the war would change people at a young age. I just really liked it. And the film itself is really, really good. And I just thought, yeah, although it's very, very recent, it's a really good film. Yeah, it's based on quite an old novel by, it was a uh, remark wrote it and it was actually banned in Nazi Germany because it was a, yeah. a pacifist yeah. novel, wasn't it? I think he had to go and live in America. Kev probably knows more about it. Yeah, yeah, we, we did it. We did a... Think about the book. His book was one of the banned books in Germany. He went to America, become an American citizen. He wrote it in the late thirties. He wrote it no, the early thirties because they made they did the first film in the early thirties. This is the third. I think film. in the twenties it was yeah. written. Then it was yeah. There's the black and white version. Then there's the one with the the lad from the Waltons, which no one will remember. Yeah. And obviously, you know, Ryan wouldn't even mate. know who the Waltons is, mate. But it's interesting, though, when going back to what Ryan mentioned earlier on about the hand to hand fighting in the trenches, I mean, that film shows that, the, the fighting with spades and ending at the hands on. And as we're talking now, that's happening over in Ukraine. It's just, it's a, it's a real struggle to get your head around, isn't it? Same with Bosnia and Kosovo. European wars are probably the worst type of wars. Everyone thinks it's not. They always think of far-off wars. But the Europeans have been industrially able to destroy each other because we talked about this before. The Soviets, the, the Russians using Soviet tactics, which is artillery is king on the battlefield. And why try and take street by street when you can shell it, flatten it? And that has always been their tactic from the Second World War. Save your blokes. Why, why send blokes in to fight in, in the street with a couple of tanks? Mind you, not be too worried about saving the blokes over in Ukraine, have they? They've been just... No, no but, but, yeah, but it's, it's attrition, isn't it? War of attrition, which is, again, Soviet tactic. As when we trained in the Cold War, that was what the Soviet tactic was, wasn't it? 
Yeah. It wasn't about the individual. It was about winning the battle. Yeah. So, Colin. No, 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 hold on. You're rushing oh, ahead. Look, she item. Luxury item. So my luxury item is really, really not great for any kind of scenario other than keeping mine happy. It's coffee. <laughs> morale, I, mate. I can't put a place on morale. Can't do anything. Can't do anything without coffee. Like, I cannot function with it. So no matter what's going on in the world, wherever I am, uh, I need a brew straight away in the morning. First thing, eyes open, caffeine in. So just for me to be able to kind of get through anything that life throws at me, I need coffee. So, that's a fair that's choice, bro. That's a fair choice. <laughs> <laughs> Colin. So my choice this week is Jungle Soldier, which is a biography by Brian Monaghan of uh, Freddie Spencer Chapman, known most famously for his book The Jungle is Neutral. And I think a lot of soldiers out there will have read that already. And in fact, it was Kev's book choice a few podcasts ago. So Chapman was orphaned early in life and his father was killed at the Somme. And as a result, he and his older brother were cared for by an elderly couple in the Lake District where Chapman developed an early interest in the nature of the, that county and the outdoors. Pre-war, he was an avid adventurer, and he joined uh, the British Arctic Air Route Expedition in 1830-31, to 31, and uh, also another expedition to Greenland in 1932-33. to 33. And he had a few adventures on these. He spent 20 hours in a storm at seeing his kayak and at one point fell into a deep crevice, saving himself by holding onto the handle of his dog sled. He later led a three-man team across a desolate Greenland ice cap and was the first European to do this since Nansen. And he, with other exped members, was also awarded the Polar Medal with the clasp Arctic 1930-31 to after the successful first expedition. Chapman was also a keen mountaineer. In early 1936, he joined a Himalayan climbing exped and obtained permission to lead a five-man uh, climb from Sikkim to the Holy Mountain in Chomohari. And he and his Sherpa, Pasang Dawa Lama, succeeded to become the first mountaineers to climb the 7,300-metre-high peak, which they finally reached the Bhutanese side after finding the route from the Tibetan side impassable. And this mountain wouldn't actually be climbed again until 1970. At the start of the war, he was commissioned to the Seaforth Highlanders and was chosen for a mission in Australia to train Australian and New Zealand forces in guerrilla warfare and eventually joined what was then the Special Training School 101, known as STS-101, in Singapore. One of the main objects of the school was to organise stay-behind parties in areas that the Japanese might overrun. So Chapman was in Malaya when the Japanese invaded in December 1941 and ended up operating behind the lines. But by early 1942... He and his teammates had run out of the supplies that had been hidden for stay-behind parties, uh, and they then tried to escape from Malaya, but had to hide from the Japanese in the jungle with the help of Malayan Chinese communists, the very same communists that the uh, British army would be fighting later on in the Malayan emergency. He gradually lost all his team members through disease and, and uh, wounds and was completely cut off, and for more than one and a half years he had to live in jungle camps with Chinese communist guerrillas travelling long distances through dense and difficult terrain, while often suffering high fevers caused by malaria. In late 1943, Chapman finally re-established contact with the British, and two other soldiers joined him from Force 136, and this was to take part in a search mission in the jungle for another stay-behind soldier. Chapman was captured by the Japanese, but managed to escape back into the, the jungle during the night, despite being surrounded by the enemy who were asleep, as well as several on guard. 
However, due to continued Japanese attacks, Chapman and two members of Force 136 were isolated again among the communist guerrillas until early 1945. So this book explores Chapman's incredible resilience and resourcefulness, as well as his bravery and leadership in the face of adversity. What becomes obvious, though, is that Chapman had one eye on a post-war book and was a bit of a self-publicist. And he uh, kept diaries and notes, much to the consternation of his mates who thought it a breaking upset. So, all in all, it's a good companion book to Chapman's book, The Jungle is Neutral, and gives you a better understanding of the complex character of, of Chapman and a wider setting for his book, The Jungle is Neutral. Chapman suffered a lot of health issues post-war, mainly due to uh, what he experienced in the jungle, and he had a particularly bad stomach complaint, and so much so that in 1971 he committed suicide, and he left a note for his wife saying that he didn't want to become a burden on her. So, that's my recommendation this week. Well, mine is uh, a book called Concord by Mike Bannister, and he's the author but was also British Airways Chief Concord Pilot. As you know, I like a little bit of innovation. Never surprised me, though, obviously, Britain, with a little bit of help from France, we have to give them a little bit on this one, built, designed an airplane in the 50s that could fly a Mark II with passengers. And you think about it, 10 years before that, we were were using prop airplanes, short range. By the 60s, we were delivering probably the, the most stunning and fastest passenger aircraft in the world that the world's ever seen. There's been nothing to top it, and no one's sort of really invested in that sort of money anymore, apart from a few of the billionaires who are looking at going into the, the atmosphere, you know, stratosphere to get speed and then drop back down again. That's because you had to be out and join to afford a seat on it, mate. Well, that's, there is that. But <laughs> I think it was the fact that... In the 60s, the 50s and 60s, we had a series of aircraft as well as the Concorde. We had the Victors and the Vulcans as well. And we were the tech, the Britain was the technological cutting edge of aircraft design. It surprised me how quickly we lost that. Some of that's money, and obviously, but some of that is um, maybe the drive. And we, we had that drive throughout the Second World War where we made the best of a, a bad thing. We made everything work better than it should do. And we carried that on. Into the, through the 50s into the 60s. I went on a Concorde, Concorde fuselage at an air museum and I was surprised how basic it was. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And it, was, and it wasn't even comfortable. You know, the seats are like really oh. close together. They're really yes. thin. It, so, it wasn't designed in the, in the way that modern aircraft are. But well, at the time, <laughs> when you think about it, it was designed in the 50s. So by the time they've gone through the drawings and actually built one, you talk in the early sixties, but in the early sixties it was it was cutting edge, it was space age. That's it for another episode. That's our guest Ryan for coming on the podcast. And to you the listener for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming and our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. You can find us on the all the usual suspects including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. And if you download us from iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review or leave a review anywhere where you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Nick Beale for all his help with the series and offering technical support through his company, ISAR. See you next time on The Unconventional Soldier.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.